When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's brand new Season 2. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode from the midweek edition of the Coin Bureau podcast. Every week, I pick out two of my favorite videos from Coin Bureau's YouTube channel to present to you in podcast form. The audio you're about to hear is from those videos I've chosen this week. Many of you have been in touch to ask whether it's possible to listen to our videos in podcast format, and so your wish is my command. This week, I've selected our videos about upcoming crypto regulations in the European Union and a report published three years ago by BlackRock, which seems to have managed to predict the future. Now, make no mistake, a regulatory tsunami is heading towards the crypto industry and its effects are going to be profound. As such, any insights we can glean into what these regulations will look like are vital, not only in helping us prepare for impact, but also in allowing us to have some influence over their eventual form. While regulators in the United States continue to sound off negatively about crypto, it's happily looking like a different story over in Europe. There, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, or MICA bill, is getting close to being voted into law, which would mean clear and coordinated crypto regulations throughout all 27 EU member states. What makes this news even better is that the bill's authors seem to have taken on board many of the criticisms levelled at an earlier draft of the legislation. 
The result is a bill that looks like being a lot more friendly to crypto than many anticipated. That's not to say there aren't areas of concern still, but it does seem like a big step in the right direction. We were lucky enough to see a leaked copy of the bill in advance, and you'll hear our thoughts on it all in this episode. Next, BlackRock is a name that just keeps coming up more and more often these days. For those unfamiliar, this giant of a company is the largest asset manager in the world, which means it's one of the most powerful forces at work in financial markets and beyond. Back in 2019, just a few months before the pandemic turned the world upside down, BlackRock published a report that predicted the extreme lengths that US monetary and fiscal policies would have to go to in the event of the next economic downturn. Turns out, the authors called it pretty well. So, have a listen as we unpick this report and draw some conclusions from it about what the rich and powerful want for the world. I hope you enjoy listening to these two pieces and I'll be back talking crypto with Mike very soon, so be sure to stay tuned. And if you want even more content from Coin Bureau, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit us on social media too. Recently, a draft of Europe's finalised crypto regulations was leaked to the press, and the amendments were interesting, to say the least. Although the final draft is not public, we were lucky enough to get our hands on the document thanks to a European crypto policy expert. Today, I'm going to explain what Europe's finalised crypto regulations say in simple terms, when they're expected to come into force, and why they could be extremely bullish for the crypto market. I want to start by giving you a quick recap of Europe's upcoming crypto regulations. As some of you will know, the European Union passed the, quote, Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, or MICA bill, over the summer, specifically at the end of June. If you watched our video about the MICA bill from May, you'll know that the regulations within the bill will apply to every country in the European Union. These regulations will also overrule every national law about cryptocurrency in the EU because, well, that's just how the EU works. Now, some of you may also recall that the MICA bill originally contained crazy proposals like requiring KYC for all NFT marketplaces, banning DeFi, and crashing BTC's price to get rid of proof of work. Note that MICA does not contain any crazy proposals about tracking crypto transactions. Those are in a different bill. (laughs) Now, what's awesome about MICA is that it contains some concrete definitions for different types of cryptocurrencies and how they should be regulated. As far as the EU is concerned, there are three types of cryptocurrencies. Utility tokens, asset reference tokens or ARTs, and e-money tokens or EMTs. For the sake of simplicity, you can think of utility tokens as including basically every cryptocurrency that's not an ART or EMT. Utility tokens include ERC20 tokens like Decentraland's MANA and even cryptocurrency coins like Bitcoin's BTC. Under the version of MICA from May, any crypto project that wants to conduct an ICO or have its coin or token listed on exchanges in the EU must provide a detailed white paper to and register with the relevant regulators. I'll explain the differences 
in the final MICA draft in a moment. Now next, we have ARTs. As the name suggests, asset reference tokens are any cryptocurrencies that derive their value from some basket of assets. This includes decentralized stablecoins like MakerDAO's DAI, which is collateralized by Ethereum's ETH, Circle's USDC, and other cryptocurrencies and stablecoins. Under the version of MICA from May, ART issuers do not have to register with any European authorities, so long as their market caps do not exceed 5 million euros, which is not much at all. If they exceed this low limit, they must maintain high-quality reserves and cannot allow holders of their ART to earn yield. And last but not least, we have EMTs, which are, of course, centralized stablecoins. This includes Tether's USDT, Circle's USDC, and Paxos's BUSD. I believe it also includes gold-backed stablecoins like Paxos's PaxG, but I suppose it ultimately depends on whether the relevant regulators consider gold to be money. Now, under the version of MICA from May, EMT issuers were subject to more or less the same rules as ART issuers, but with a lot more scrutiny. Stablecoins deemed significant would have their transaction volumes capped at 200 million euros per day. This is very low since all cryptos trade against stablecoins. As you might have guessed, these restrictions around stablecoins, be they ARTs or EMTs, are due to the EU's fears that a stablecoin could displace the euro. These fears date back to Facebook's Libra project, and they're becoming more acute as the euro declines against the US dollar. This is why it's so interesting that the final draft of MICA, which leaked in late September, revealed that some of the restrictions on centralized stablecoins had been removed. As you'll soon see, this is just one of the many interesting things in the final draft of MICA. This final draft of MICA is a whopping 1,050 pages long. As you can see, it contains four columns. The fourth column is titled Draft Agreement, and it is the final text that will officially become law in just a few months. Just an FYI for anyone who manages to find the full document and wants to understand it. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, we managed to get our hands on the document thanks to a European crypto policy expert and advisor named Patrick Hansen. Patrick has actually been the source for much of the news you've been hearing about crypto regulations in Europe, especially MICA. If you're interested in European crypto regulation, I strongly suggest following Patrick on Twitter. I'll leave links to a few of his threads about MICA in the description if you're interested. Maybe you can convince him to share the document with you too. In all seriousness, Patrick was kind enough to answer all the questions we had about his version of MICA. Our first question was obviously who leaked the bill. Not surprisingly, it was one of the politicians who was intimately involved with the bill itself. Not naming names, of course. Patrick went on to explain that it's quite common for high-profile EU bills to be leaked. This is because the final discussions always take place behind closed doors. Leaking the bill essentially allows the lobbyists to check if the changes they wanted were implemented or if more persuasion is needed. So this immediately begs the question of who wanted to see the final draft of MICA leaked. Given that the biggest changes related to the restrictive regulations around centralized stablecoins, it's safe to assume that stablecoin issuers were involved. Again, not naming names, but I think you can guess who. 
As to whether these special interests were satisfied with the final MICA draft, Patrick said that as far as he can tell, the answer is yes. This is because all the regulations proposed by so-called crypto-skeptics were avoided. This includes the crazy proposals I mentioned earlier. In Patrick's eyes, the biggest upside is that MICA will harmonize crypto regulations across Europe. This means that a crypto project or company just needs to get regulatory approval in one EU country and it will allow them to do business in the other 26. Patrick believes that this will make it easier for crypto projects and companies to scale within Europe and will simultaneously provide much-needed regulatory clarity for institutional investors across Europe. MICA could therefore serve as a catalyst for the next crypto bull run. More about that later. Now, Patrick summed up the final draft of MICA as being, quote, mostly reasonable, unlike the transfer of funds or TFR regulation, which I alluded to earlier. That's the one that wants KYC to be applied to every single crypto transaction, courtesy of the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF. You can learn more about the FATF and how it's trying to kill crypto by using the link in the description. Now, figuring out exactly what changed between the MICA version in May and the final draft of MICA, which leaked late last month, is no easy task. I mean, the final draft is literally over a thousand pages long, and most of the text is repeated four times due to the columns, making it very difficult to search by keyword. What's scary is that Patrick admitted that only a handful of people are intimately familiar with what's in MICA and the changes that were made between the two versions. For what it's worth, Patrick's research, as well as our own, seems to have identified the biggest changes. So, let's start with the fun stuff, NFTs and DeFi. Now, one of the biggest criticisms of the previous version of MICA was that it didn't contain many details about these two niches. To be exact, it didn't have any details about NFTs at all and seemed to imply that DeFi protocols would have to register with regulators. In the final draft of MICA, the authors specify that fractionalized NFTs will be treated like utility tokens. This means that issuers of fractionalized NFTs will have to register with regulators, present a white paper, and all that other stuff. More about fractionalized NFTs in the description. I digress. What's odd is that the authors also say, quote, the issuance of crypto assets as non-fungible tokens in a large series or collection should be considered as an indicator of their fungibility. In other words, if there is an NFT with a large collection of similar-looking JPEGs, they may also be subject to regulation. According to Patrick, it's likely that regulators will decide the fungibility of NFT collections on a case-by-case -case basis. He's also concerned that extra scrutiny could be applied to larger NFT collections, including popular ones like the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Note that Patrick didn't name any names here. Now, DeFi is where things get really interesting. That's because the authors specify that MICA does not apply to DeFi. Quote, Where crypto asset services, as defined in this regulation, are provided in a fully decentralized manner without any intermediary, they do not fall within the scope of this regulation. This begs the question of what decentralized means. According to Patrick, the definition of decentralization will be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. 
This is a bit concerning, as it leaves the door open to biased regulation, but it's still easily the best DeFi regulation in any developed country so far. It's also more significant than you think, because regulators in the United States don't even consider DeFi to be a thing. As far as they're concerned, the DeFi niche doesn't exist. The fact that European regulations are seen as the gold standard could therefore help US crypto regulators find reason. Don't get too excited yet, though. The final draft of MICA also notes that a report will be issued next year that will address the feasibility of regulating DeFi in the European Union. With some luck, the crypto lobbyists will manage to protect DeFi from a total crackdown by the bank lobbyists. Anyways, when it comes to utility tokens, the final draft of MICA didn't have that much to say about them. Then again, neither did the May version of MICA. You'll recall this is because the focus of MICA is fundamentally to protect the Eurozone from succumbing to a foreign currency of some kind. That said, I did find an interesting provision on page 40. Quote, No requirements of this regulation should apply to crypto assets that are automatically created as a reward for the maintenance of the DLT or the validation of transactions in the context of a consensus mechanism. Now, call me crazy, but this sounds like cryptocurrency coins will not be subject to MICA. This makes sense when we're talking about coins like BTC, ETH, and even ADA. However, it makes less sense when we start talking about new crypto coins that were funded via VC-focused ICOs, at least in my opinion. Now, the very next phrase of this paragraph also suggests that tokens or NFTs that are offered as part of loyalty or rewards programs will not be subject to MICA either. If my interpretation is correct, I suspect we're going to see no shortage of shitcoins exploit this regulatory loophole during the next bull market. On page 179, I found another interesting provision about utility tokens. This provision suggests that a crypto project that conducts an ICO must complete its DAP or blockchain within one year of the white paper being published. It's not entirely clear, but it makes sense, so I suspect this is the case. After all, you wouldn't want someone to issue a white paper, conduct an ICO, and then change what the project is about later down the line. Come to think of it, there are lots of crypto projects that have pivoted like this, and from what I can remember, it's never ended well for them or the ICO participants. Now, when it comes to ARTs, the term asset referenced token is used no less than 3,000 times in the final MICA draft. For reference, this is half as many times as the term e-money token is mentioned. Meanwhile, the term utility token is only mentioned 72 times. Really gets the noggin jogging. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have time to check every single one of the 3,000 mentions of ARTs. Even so, we still found a few very interesting things. I'll start by saying that there was a lot of overlap between provisions for ARTs and EMTs which again makes sense given MICA's stablecoin focus. Interestingly, this is not the case with all the provisions found on pages 62 to 72, where the authors give an extremely long list of all the regulations that ART issuers must abide by. It appears that EMT issuers are not subject to nearly the same degree of scrutiny, and this is something Patrick also pointed out. 
It's almost as if centralized stablecoin issuers don't want competition from decentralized stablecoin issuers, but surely that would never find its way into regulation, right? Conspiracies aside, on page 256, the authors specify that white papers for ARTs must always include three disclaimers. The ART can go to zero, the ART may not always be transferable, and the ART may not always be liquid. Tell me you're talking about terror without telling me you're talking about terror. Then, on page 360, there's a peculiar provision which seems to suggest that the release of an audit of an ART's reserves can be delayed if it is, quote, deemed necessary to protect the economic interests of holders of the asset reference token. Make of that what you will. When it comes to EMTs, the most significant change in the final draft of MICA is the clarification of what is meant by transactions in the context of stablecoin transaction limits. Patrick found this clarification on page 77, where the authors specify that transaction limits on stablecoins will only apply to payments. This is important because it means that stablecoins like USDT and USDC have no usage cap in other contexts. They can be used for trading in DeFi and other non-payment purposes with no limits. Now, this is great, but I can't help but feel that this provision could become a loophole for peer-to-peer -peer payments. What's interesting is that this loophole probably isn't a problem because Patrick found that many of the original EMT restrictions will still apply to US dollar stablecoins. This means that only euro stablecoins will not be subject to restrictions, which makes sense given that they don't compete with the euro. It also makes sense because of the assets that back stablecoins. If you watched our video about that, you'll know that most of them are backed by debt, mostly US government debt. This means that when you buy a USD stablecoin, you are subsidizing the US government. Naturally, issuers of euro stablecoins in Europe will be required to hold their reserves in, quote, highly liquid assets. This is almost certainly code for European government debt, as it is a highly liquid asset, and I suspect which government debt will depend on which European country requires the subsidy. For context, the European Central Bank has had a hard time raising interest rates because it would cause issues for countries like Italy and Spain. With a euro stablecoin, however, it would be possible to invest the capital of unsuspecting crypto holders into Italian and Spanish debt to keep the eurozone intact. On that note, a few months ago, Patrick explained that the reason why we didn't see a euro stablecoin until recently was because base interest rates in the eurozone were negative. This meant that a euro stablecoin issuer wouldn't stand to make any money holding European government debt to back a euro stablecoin. This is why Circle revealed a euro-backed stablecoin shortly before the ECB started raising interest rates. It's safe to say that Circle is now perfectly positioned to take advantage of the favourable stablecoin provisions in the final MICA draft. Funny that. Speaking of which, there were a couple of interesting stablecoin provisions I found which stuck out to me. The first is on page 982, and it says that stablecoin issuers need to disclose whether they have any affiliation with the smart contract cryptocurrencies their stablecoins are circulating on. Now, this is fascinating as it could reveal some previously unknown affiliations 
between major stablecoin issuers and smart contract cryptocurrencies. I can think of a few which might come up, but I'll leave that to your own imagination and research. The other interesting stablecoin provision is on page 987, and it seems to suggest that stablecoin issuers will not be allowed to charge any fees for minting and redeeming their stablecoin tokens. This just underscores how much stablecoin issuers will rely on European government debt for revenue. So, this brings me to the two big questions you came here for, and that's when MICO will come into force and why it could be extremely bullish for the crypto market. Patrick explained that the next step is for the final draft to be voted on again by European politicians. This will happen in the next couple of weeks. It's important to note that no more changes will be made, and this vote is just a formality. Once that's done, the text in the final draft will have to be rewritten for clarity, reviewed by lawyers to make sure the same regulations are being communicated, and then translated into all the lovely languages of Europe. Patrick estimates that this whole process will take another few months, but we should see the official MICA regulations published no later than February next year. MICA will immediately become law the moment it's published, but there will be transitional periods for the regulations within it. Patrick said that the stablecoin-related regulations will come into force roughly one year from publication, so early 2024. The rest of the crypto regulations will come into force around 18 months after publication, so mid to late 2024. This coincidentally corresponds to roughly when the next crypto bull run will begin. Hence why I believe MICA could be extremely bullish for the crypto market. It will bring regulatory clarity to institutional investors in Europe at around the same time when interest in cryptocurrency will be on the rise, the perfect catalyst. This in turn could give rise to lots of promising European crypto projects and companies, but there is one caveat. All the regulatory compliance could make it hard for new crypto projects and companies to get off the ground from within Europe, something Patrick is also concerned about. This is especially true of any crypto projects trying to create decentralized stablecoins, which will be subject to a laundry list of limitations as ARTs. It might also be tricky for DeFi protocols to get off the ground as their success will depend on whether regulators classify them as decentralized or not. Now, all in all, I agree with Patrick that MICA is mostly reasonable. I also agree with his perspective that crypto regulation in the United States will not be nearly as reasonable as it is in Europe. This could make the current crypto bear market worse and create headwinds for the crypto bull market when it returns. You can learn more about the upcoming crypto crackdown in the United States using, of course, the link in the description. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, 
offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. 
And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All the way back in August 2019, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, published a research paper co-authored by Stanley Fisher, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, believe it or not, But this research paper predicted much of the unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy we saw during the pandemic just a few months before it happened. Today, I'm going to unpack this peculiar paper, explain what it says in simple terms, and tell you what predictions it makes about what comes next for the global economy. The research paper I'll be summarizing today is titled, quote, Dealing with the Next Downturn, From Unconventional Monetary Policy to Unprecedented Policy Coordination. It was published by BlackRock's Investment Institute, and I'll leave a link to the full research paper in the description. Now, the paper begins with a short summary, but I'll preface it with a couple of key terms. Monetary policy is what central banks do and includes stuff like raising and lowering interest rates. Fiscal policy is what governments do and includes stuff like raising and lowering taxes, and yes, sending out stimmy checks. What the authors argue in this research paper is that the next economic downturn will require, quote, unprecedented monetary and fiscal policy that will need to be closely coordinated. I'll reiterate that this research paper was published prior to the pandemic, which saw exactly this occur. What's nice is that the authors outline their argument in seven points. The first argument is that monetary policy will not be enough to soften the next economic downturn. This is because interest rates were already at or near zero in most countries at the time. Note that this was the case until fairly recently. The second argument is that fiscal policy alone will likewise be insufficient at softening the next economic downturn. This is because it is, quote, typically not nimble enough, meaning there is often a democratic process behind each batch of government spending, and, well, that's just not efficient. The authors also warn that too much government spending could cause interest rates to rise due to their negative effects on the valuation of government debt. Note that the interest rates on government debt are basically used as the baseline interest rates for other kinds of debt in the economy. The third argument is that monetary and fiscal policy must work in tandem to soften the next economic downturn. The authors caution that, quote, hoping for such an outcome will probably not be enough, which seems to suggest that governments need to get their central banks in line. Funnily enough, this was around the time that former US President Donald Trump was slamming Fed Chairman Jerome Powell for not lowering interest rates more in the face of a slowing economy. Trump even tweeted that Jerome had, quote, no guts, no sense, no vision. What a time. Now, the fourth argument of the authors is that softening the next downturn will require central banks to, quote, go direct. 
put simply, interact directly with the economy. In the case of the Fed, that involved buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of corporate debt, a Fed first. The fifth argument is that an extreme form of going direct, such as the Fed buying corporate debt, would be, quote, an explicit and permanent monetary financing of a fiscal expansion, or so-called helicopter money. My interpretation of this is that by doing something drastic like buying up corporate debt, central banks have opened a Pandora's box they cannot close. In other words, similar measures will forever have to be taken in future downturns and could even expand to purchasing other assets like stocks. Fun fact, the Bank of Japan has been buying stocks for years. The authors seem to suggest that if the Fed starts doing the same, quote, it would undermine institutional credibility. Some would say that's already happened with the corporate bond buying. Now, with the sixth argument, the authors provide a four-point plan for this kind of unprecedented stimulus. These points are define the unusual circumstances that justify the stimulus, set an inflation objective for the stimulus, deploy the stimulus, and finally, phase out the stimulus. This ties in to the author's sixth argument, and that's that this unprecedented stimulus should be, quote, calibrated to achieve the inflation objective, which could include making up for past inflation misses. This is significant because prior to the pandemic, central banks in the United States and elsewhere were actually struggling to meet their 2% inflation targets. This is for multiple reasons, mainly demographic decline, which seems to be why the people in power are trying to transition to a rent-based economy. More about that in the description. Now, if you're wondering why a 2% inflation target is so important, it's really for two reasons. First, when money is slowly losing value, it incentivizes people to spend rather than save. This stimulates the economy and it's ultimately why central banks lower interest rates. They want a bit of inflation. Second, governments and corporations around the world have taken on record levels of debt. If the economy were to become deflationary, then the value of that debt would increase rather than decrease, as it does in inflationary environments. This is why some analysts believe the inflation caused by unprecedented stimulus during the pandemic was intentional. The elites need high inflation to devalue their debts. High inflation also crushes small businesses and allows bigger businesses to eat up their assets and market share. Now consider that the authors of this research paper effectively called for governments and central banks to cause more inflation in response to the next economic crisis. Nah, it's probably nothing. I mean, it's not like BlackRock has incredible influence over central banks and governments, is it? Say, did I mention that this research paper was co-authored by the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve? Anyways, the first part of the report provides another nugget of evidence that all the inflation we're experiencing now is intentional. This is because the authors specify that, quote, bringing inflation back to target in a sustainable way is still proving challenging. The authors go on to explain that, quote, in the Eurozone, the sovereign debt crisis and low inflation environment ultimately led the European Central Bank to adopt many policy innovations that have helped stave off deflation. They also complain that these policies were held up in European courts. 
Now, if you watched our video about the coming housing market crash, you might recall that housing costs in the European Union have been increasing ever since the European Central Bank, or ECB, adopted these policies. To clarify, these policies were introduced in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. The authors then talk about all the other measures that were taken in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis around the world. What's fascinating is that the authors admit that the financial regulations we've seen since then are meant to make it easier for central banks to stimulate the economy. Another way of explaining this is that financial regulations have centralized the economies of the world. It looks like the end game of this centralization is a central bank digital currency or CBDC, where central banks control the economy itself. I mean, how else can they keep this Fiat Ponzi from falling apart? Now, in the second part of the report, the authors reiterate that, quote, after a decade of unprecedented monetary stimulus around the world, actual inflation and inflation expectations still remain stubbornly low in most major economies. Well, they sure solved that issue, didn't they? In all seriousness, the authors speculate that inflation is low in major economies for two reasons. The first is that the world has become globalized, interconnected, and most importantly, technologically advanced. Note that technology is a primary driver of deflation as it makes everything cheaper. Speaking of which, you should know that were it not for the constant money printing by central banks, things would actually be getting cheaper over time, not more expensive. But alas, allowing the economy to turn deflationary would do damage to the people in power, so it must not be permitted. I digress. The second reason why the authors believe inflation is, or rather was, so low is because of inflation expectations. The average pre-pandemic person could see that the economy was turning deflationary, so they were spending as if it was deflationary, i.e. not enough. If you've watched any of our recent videos about the Fed, you'll know that today the people in power have the opposite problem. The average post-pandemic person sees that inflation isn't going anywhere but up, so they're spending in accordance with that expectation, i.e. way too much, in theory, of course. The authors then provide this image of the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, and CPI compared to inflation expectations. Not surprisingly, inflation expectations are highly correlated to the Consumer Price Index. The authors go on to explain that this low inflation means it's not possible for central banks around the world to raise interest rates. That's because raising interest rates would crush inflation even more. Again, the elites do not want this to happen, as it will make their debts more expensive. In the third part of the report, the authors continue discussing the issue of low inflation. They speculate that the Asian financial crisis of the 1990s and the 2008 financial crisis caused a behavioral shift across the global economy, from spending to saving. Obviously, this is bad for the powers that be. What's again fascinating is that the authors managed to estimate that this increase in savings corresponds to an additional interest rate of 1.5% on top of whatever the central banks had in place. Not a literal interest rate, but a de facto one. Truly fascinating stuff. The authors add that many of these savings find their way into risk-off assets like government debt. As I mentioned earlier, the interest on government debt sets the baseline for other kinds of debt in the economy. 
By buying up so much government debt, individuals and institutions were effectively keeping interest rates low. This is because interest rates on government debt rise when demand is low and fall when demand is high. Basic economics, sort of. The authors conclude that for central banks to cushion the next financial crisis, they would have to drop rates to minus 2%, which they can't really do. Now, in the fourth part of the report, the authors turn to fiscal policy, which you'll recall is the government's job. The authors argue that governments haven't been spending nearly enough money on improving their country's infrastructures. That's probably because they've been too busy buying votes. Hmm. Logically, the authors argue that governments should start borrowing and spending much more and insist this is fine because of the low interest rate environment. This rhetoric relates to the fifth part of the report, which concerns the coordination between governments and central banks. They explain that, for political and economic reasons, it will be necessary for both parties to be on the same page during the next market downturn. What's crazy is that the authors point to Europe as an example of this coordination. This is crazy because the ECB has been struggling to hold the Eurozone together while it raises interest rates. This is because it's impossible to have the same monetary policy for the different fiscal policies of European countries. The authors then suggest that central banks buy stocks to cushion the next financial crisis, and you'll hopefully recall that the Fed wasn't far off from doing exactly that at the start of the pandemic. Then, in the sixth part of the report, the authors discuss the origin of the term helicopter money and talk about how it could likewise be used to cushion the next financial crisis. The authors stress that this kind of extreme action must be enough to drive up inflation. Mission accomplished. They go on to explain that helicopter money is nothing new and that it's totally fine except for all the times that it ended in hyperinflation. Yikes. The authors admit, quote, that highlights the main drawback of helicopter money, how to get the inflation genie back in the bottle once it has been released. They also admit that history has shown that this kind of stimulus cannot be fine-tuned for a, quote, modest increase in inflation. It's always either too much or too little. You don't say. Now, the seventh part of the report covers all the political challenges that are associated with money printing. The authors start by explaining that, quote, many central banks became truly independent in the wake of the painful lessons learned from the high inflation and low growth environment of the 1970s. In other words, they pulled the money printers away from the politicians the last time they tried this. Oddly enough, the authors say that this separation of powers was a good thing, but that the central banks have again become politicized post-2008. The authors predicted that the central banks and governments will become even more intertwined during the next financial crisis, and they were right. Then the authors say the quiet part out loud. Quote, There is growing political discontent across major economies, and central banks are one of the targets. Widening inequality has fostered a backlash against elites. They add that, quote, there are many drivers of inequality, including, at its root, technology, winner-take-all dynamics, and globalization. I'll add another driver, and that's central banks printing money 
and shoveling it in the direction of the largest institutions on Wall Street, such as BlackRock. This is why I chuckled when the authors claimed that inequality started to be an issue after the 2008 financial crisis. The truth is that inequality began the moment the US dollar went off the gold standard. Since that time, money has been printed out of thin air and allocated to all the entities I just mentioned. But no, it's not the central banks or Wall Street. According to the authors, the government is to blame, the very same politicians that Wall Street lobbies with printed money from the central bank. The authors seem to imply that the solution to this discontent is a strong fiscal policy, a.k.a. universal basic income, through the use of a digital currency issued by a central bank. That will keep the plebs from protesting until they realise all those digital dollars are finding their way back to Wall Street. Now, to their credit, the authors underscore the risks associated with such a route, namely that it will lead to way too much digital money printing to appease the masses. I reckon that's what comes after all those CBDCs are rolled out, and that's just one of the many negative effects CBDCs will have. More about all that in the description. Now, after discussing what a unified fiscal and monetary policy framework would look like, the authors provide a template for the United States, the Eurozone, Japan, and the United Kingdom to implement this framework. Incredibly, this included notes about which laws would need to be adjusted, if any. As you might have guessed, each of these economic areas did something along the lines of what the authors suggested when the pandemic hit. In the final part of the report, the authors talk about the implications their master plan would have on the markets. They start by saying that this coordination of fiscal and monetary policy would ideally take place well before a financial crisis. I wonder how they would know one was coming. Hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In any case, one of the many scenarios the authors outline is essentially what's happening now. Quote, Shorter-run inflation expectations could overshoot as the central bank aims for above-average inflation during its price-level targeting phase. Naturally, quote, this would push up the relative returns of inflation-linked bonds over nominal counterparts. It would also boost returns of other real assets in private markets, such as infrastructure and property. What the authors didn't predict, however, is that we're not just in an inflationary environment, we're in a stagflationary one. This means that prices continue to rise while the cost of assets continues to fall, including infrastructure and property. Come to think of it, this might be a result 
of the governments and central banks engaging in these emergency measures after the markets had already reacted. The authors actually warn about the issues that could arise when doing this. The difference is the authors see deflation as the primary issue arising from the incorrect implementation of a coordinated monetary and fiscal policy. I know this sounds insane, but it's quite possible that extreme deflation is what comes next once the inflation fight has been won. According to the authors, quote, this scenario would argue for a preference of nominal bonds over inflation-linked instruments. This is interesting because, so far, government bonds have failed to be the safe haven asset they typically are during downturns. They've fallen in value along with everything else. Some macroanalysts believe it's only a matter of time before government bonds start to rally, as they should during such circumstances. I must admit, I don't fully understand the reasoning there, but it sounds like it's the same reasoning of the experts over at BlackRock. What I'm wondering is what happens when the financial crisis comes. It's easy to forget that the financial crisis being talked about in this research paper is the one that happened immediately after the pandemic hit. What we seem to be facing now is something else entirely. It's too soon to say how bad the next downturn will be, but the last time we had a Great Depression, the way we got out of it was through a world war. Given everything that's been going on these days in Ukraine, Taiwan and elsewhere, that's an outcome that's way too close for comfort. The worst part is that the only alternative is a central bank digital currency, at least as far as the people in power are concerned. There is a third way, however, and that's through crypto. The question is whether crypto will be ready to play this role. I reckon it will be when the day comes. But until then, we'll get to experience more fiscal and monetary policy madness, no shortage of warmongering, and a bunch of crypto crackdowns driven by central banks. More about that using the link in the description. Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Coin Bureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at at Coin Bureau, all one word. And I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram too. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.